Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. And today we're talking about Caves of Cud, developed by Freehold Games. It was released for early access in 2015 and has been in continuous development ever since. One of those perennial roguelikes where they just keep adding more and more features to it. Yeah, I was going to say, I think this is in the uh, same realm of longevity as uh, Dwarf Fortress or something like that. Um, It's, you know, uh, clearly a a passion project for the team there, uh, primarily Brian Bucklew and Jason Grinblatt, uh, who were the the sort of primaries and founders of um, Freehold, along with some other contributors. Yeah, and there's definitely, you can tell this is a very sprawling sort of game. Uh, There are nooks and crannies all over the place Uh, there are systems that interact with each other in very interesting ways all the good stuff you're looking for absolutely like as far as roguelikes go you know this this is an open world roguelike so you know it's meant for uh (laughs) long quests uh where you're sort of inhabiting a world for a long time uh which to my mind is sort of anathema for a rogue style game but um you know i think this this game bridges the the gap in a really interesting way and there's so much interesting stuff going on in it that it warrants uh, a discussion for sure it warrants a spoiler alert here at the top of the podcast here interesting choice for a roguelike in which the spoiler alert actually has some heft to it um like this isn't just a go grab the amulet of yendor at the bottom of the dungeon here and there's your plot there is an actual plot to this game yeah, there's a plot and there's a backstory, which is equally important. And I think sort of figuring out the sort of uh, narrative and the backstory and what happened in uh, this world of the Caves of Cud is all, uh, you know, it, it could be considered a spoiler to uh, discuss it here. So uh, as you said, Josh, spoiler warning up top if you're sensitive to that. Um, but I will say I will ameliorate that warning a little bit by saying neither me or Brian have gotten super far into the game. I think I'm very <laughs> solidly mid-game, maybe a little towards the end game over, but neither of us have beaten this game. How about you, Brian? How far did you get? Yeah, definitely not. No, I, I would consider myself a solidly early game, um, you know, even with um, a few dozen hours under my belt. Um, you know, it's a roguelike. You're going to, it, it really, the first dozen hours is just the learning curve, right? The first dozen deaths. <laughs> their sacrifices to the altar of knowledge exactly yeah and this is one of those games that um you know you are as most roguelikes are a lot of the fun is in the learning in the figuring out what's going on in the world um but uh you know you you are obviously much more versed in roguelikes and uh, games of this type than i am uh which is to say i think you have uh, a much stronger handle on this game than i do but i'll i'll do my best to to keep up <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think so. Like, you know, roguelikes. I, I feel among the three of us at Pixelated Playgrounds here, I'm probably like the specialty roguelike player. Like, give me ASCII graphics. not <laughs> Or give me death. But, like, I, I don't I don't get phased by them as much. Right. Not that this game does have ASCII graphics. It does have a kind of tiled pixel art that's maybe in an ASCII art style, if that makes sense, where everything is, um, most everything is single bit, like you're either one color or you're another color. There's not a lot of like, this isn't like a 16 by 16 piece of pixel art necessarily, but it's 
trying to be like, we have one color on this tile, or we have maybe two for some highlights there. So it's a very low-key style. But yeah, I, w- I would say it's more than more than two. You know, it's it's full color. It's lo-fi pixel art is what I would say, like extremely oh. lo-fi. Lo-fi pic- I meant um, one color per 16 by 16 tile. Uh, got it, got it, got it. Like okay, you're not yeah. going to get 20 <laughs> colors inside that square. Yeah, but um, as I understand it, you know, the game, and maybe we should talk a bit about the history here, is it actually did used to be full ASCII and in recent years transitioned to lo-fi pixel art as it came um, through early access. Um, I like the lo-fi pixel art in this game. Uh, it, to me, is a nice balance between like what you would see on a typical you know, indie roguelike with pixel art and a uh, traditional roguelike with ASCII graphics uh, a la Dwarf Fortress. Uh, so to me, this was a, a really helpful step in the right direction. Uh, I know for those uh, old heads of Pixelated Playgrounds, my, our discussion on um, Dwarf Fortress, I, uh, you know, I struggled with the ASCII graphics, and this game had a, a nice sort of nudge for me to, to keep going through the lo-fi pixel art. You know, that's a very good point. Like, you take a look at a screen here, and it's much more readable uh, than straight-up ASCII graphics, but it's also not straying too far from that aesthetic because I think they, you know, especially uh, more early on, too, are, uh, you know, this developed as a roguelike, and you're playing to that audience and those genre expectations. Yeah, and, you know, the the amount of lo-fi that it is also encourages uh, imagination, right? It asks you to fill in a lot of blanks. You know, it's uh, closer to reading uh, letters off a page than it is full hi-fi, you know, modern graphical realism. So, um, you know, uh, to that end, maybe we should talk a little bit about the the development uh, (laughs) since we uh, just jumped right into aesthetics. But, um, you know, we we talked about this starting off in uh, 2015. Uh, or actually, as I understand it, this started off in 2007 uh, and only launched in early access on 2015. Um, Woo! The f- that is a <laughs> larger pedigree than I thought. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, um, Brian Bucklew and Jason Grinbalt at, at Freehold, they also made a game called Sproggy Wood, which is another um, roguelike game, which I played on iOS back in the day. Uh, it's a pretty cool game. Uh, you know, also a little more uh, more of an indie roguelike than a traditional roguelike like uh, Caves of Cut is. But um, they definitely, you know, have a, a fully viable commercial product under their belt and lots of other things going on. But um, Caves of Cud seems to be the, the longest going project that they have for sure. Quick aside, Brian, you've used the terms traditional roguelike versus indie roguelike. Are you thinking indie roguelike like um, Dungeons of Dreadmore, Splunky, uh, things like that, where you are like roguelikes with graphics and also not necessarily like the turn-based dungeon crawl kind of thing? Yeah, that, that's a good uh, good point. Yes, that's exactly what I'm doing is I'm using that as my own personal shorthand. Like I think of a modern, maybe the better word is like a modern roguelike. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and yeah, you're right. Some of them are indie, some of them are not. But um, yeah, a modern roguelike with like full, um, I guess, full pixel. There, yeah, there's such a like a large spectrum here. It, it doesn't even make sense to try and draw any lines or put anything in boxes. But uh, that's just my own personal shorthand, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, but to that end, you know, I know Josh, you, uh, I, I think how I remember it is I put this game on, on my wish list, having heard about it sort of in the Twitter sphere and, uh, looked at it for a long time before picking it up. And, and finally I had enough of a, um, a push by, you know, ringing endorsements from various corners of the internet that I did pick it up, but you were the one that actually like dove 
head first into it and um when you started playing it is really when i started playing it more <laughs> you know i i was thinking that um i was the discoverer discoverer of this game between the two of us but no that is i'm remembering now that yes you did buy the game first and you had marked an interest in playing it but as far as I remember, it was just like, oh, this is on the two playlists sometimes. And then one time I messaged Brian, I'm like, I'm 20 hours deep into CUD, so we're going to do a podcast on this sometime. I was like, oh, I, I guess I better start playing it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it, you know, uh, it, it just like struck me as such an interesting project that I almost like couldn't keep myself away. Um, and to that end, maybe we should talk a little bit about what this game's like. You know, we've talked about what it looks like. We talked about the, the basic form it takes, a.k.a. a traditional uh, roguelike, I suppose. But what is Cud? What is What are the caves of Cud? Cud is a vast land, a post-sci-fi world jungled over in the millennia since the apocalypse happened. This isn't like post-apocalyptic like Fallout is where, you know, the nuclear apocalypse happened in not even not living memory not even like but within the last hundred years and like civilization is rebuilding caves of cut is like a hundred thousand years after that happened yeah we're like five post-apocalypses away from the world of caves of cut um (laughs) (laughs) here in 2022 um the way the initial tagline of the game went was chisel through a layer cake of thousand year old civilizations um, which I think is pretty good because the world, as you said, Josh, basically it's weird, mysterious, highly irradiated, colorful, post-post-apocalyptic science fantasy. Uh, you've got, you know, mutants and magic and technology that's so advanced that it might as well be magic. Um, and it's just a really interesting um, just backdrop that, that you don't normally see in games. One of the devs, Jason Grinplatt, was saying that one of the inspirations for this game was an old pen and paper RPG where the nuclear apocalypse happened and the nuclear radiation had granted sentience to plants, fungi, animals, all sorts of things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you see the uh, remnants of that in the game, which has you know cultures and histories generated for uh, you know, we'll go into this more later, but tons of factions of which are included animals and plants and various other forms of uh, beings in the world of the Caves of Cud. But for me, I think one of the main draws of this game for me was I kept hearing about how high quality the writing was. Hmm. Yeah, and this game does have a lot of writing, and strangely, despite you know you hearing about that, some of it is bespoke, but a lot of it is procedurally generated, um, and uh, it's it's fascinating to me how they're able to ride the line here and make a game with such comprehensively good lore, despite only some of it being dis- bespoke. <laughs> Actually, I think there's in one of the interviews I was. Uh watching a bit with the devs uh they were talking about how the procedurally generated histories that they come up with 
were actually a late addition to the game. There was a lot of lore and storyline in place already. So what they did was they made the procedural generation kind of take place in the era before much of their pre-written lore uh, was taken place in. Uh, they call it the Era of the Sultans, and there's these five sultans, um, five major historical figures that have a number of major events that kind of shape the world uh, and the history and the culture that you're diving into. Yeah, that's right. So I guess in the the way distant past, there were the eaters, you know, old ones. They built the giant space tower, the spindle, which towers over the, the land that you're able to see. Those are the precursor civilization, you know, the ancient dead alien civilization trope. Yeah, ancient aliens, if you will. Or maybe not aliens. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah, could have been humans. But that's the thing is they like they paint this incredibly vague history of the past and just allow uh, the procedural generation aspects of, you know, the eras of the five sultans to just sort of project itself onto that. And uh, I don't know if this was a point you were going to make, but the interesting thing to me is they basically uh, start with, uh, I believe, the most recent uh, sultan being the least procedurally generated and the uh, oldest sultan, the first sultan being the most procedurally generated, basically uh, showing that like as history continues to go further back in time, you get more and more sort of randomization and less certainty uh, about the aspects of what actually happened. Reading the interview was pretty cool because having not gotten through all of the game, I'm sure there's plot points about the sultans that were not yet revealed. Um, but listening to the interview... Uh, they, were, they were talking about how each of the sultans had an aspect, like they were in charge of poetry or they were in charge of strength or ice. And that would kind of flavor all of their historical events that would happen. However, the last sultan, whose name I think is Rashith, uh, Rashif, maybe, um, he was, uh, he had some procedurally generated um Quest, or not quest, but, but events that would happen. But he also had some major story events, too, because he was the last of the sultans and the one that overcame the interdimensional plague known as the Gyre. Hmm. And I think part of the plot of the um, Caves of Cud is that the Gyre is returning or seems to be returning. And hey, what's going on? Yeah, so you're plopped into this world. Basically, you wander in off the uh, the left corner of the map into uh, the town of Joppa, and you, uh, I guess, have the option of beginning the first sort of bespoke quest, which I think is worth mentioning because, uh, as we mentioned, this game has some quest lines that are fully bespoke and um, scripted, so to speak, and others that are completely randomized and procedurally generated. It is unusual for a roguelike in having that main quest line or having some story, some meat behind the bones of what you're doing and why you are where you are. Yeah, and uh, to me, I like it. I, I you know, I, I, the Amulet of Yendor set up in, in most classic roguelikes, like, yes, it's good. It's a, uh, a trope we're all familiar with, and it's good shorthand to just sort of get you going and descending into a dungeon. But... 
Um, part of the uniqueness of this game was the fact that it was willing to tell its own story. And I enjoy that. You know, I like having lore, backstory, and, and all of that good stuff to help me, like, get invested in a world. Uh, so this solved one, one problem I have with some uh, traditional roguelikes uh, in that way. And I want to point out again how good I think this writing was. Like, you know, um, I, I do a lot of reading. I've, I've, I've seen a lot of words in my day. Uh, this is the last video game I remember where I had to use a dictionary occasionally to look <laughs> things up. And by a dictionary, I mean Google search bar. Just read a couple of short descriptions that they use in the game. Even at the very beginning, you can go to the overworld map and look at the different t- terrain types. Uh, two of the terrain types are hills and salt dunes. Uh, the hills they describe as blips in the wave graph of stone over time. And the salt dunes they describe as the ivory seas dunes are like waves frozen in place. There are cracks in the salt from where the earth, blistered by the jeweled sun, contracted and broke. Dang. Like, it definitely leads to a bit of kind of like florid prose in some ways, a very descriptive but it's also such a style you never see in video games. Oh, totally. Especially not one done so well. Yeah, and the, the prose being extremely purple like that, like really, it, it adds a lot to the atmosphere of the game, even if we're in like a post-post-post-apocalyptic or, you know, landscape where everyone's trying to survive, um, you know, as best they can in a world that's out to get them. Like, there's still beauty, and the game's writing is really the only thing that's allowing you to see that, aside from the very <laughs> vibrant pixel art. Um, There's still beauty, even though it's all trying to kill you. Yes, yes, beautiful death. (laughs) While we're on the topic of the the world of this game, I think maybe we should talk a little bit about uh, how it is um, getting you, or how it is... Uh, laid out before you as you start the game. Basically, as I mentioned, you you <laughs> seemingly wander in off the left-hand side of the map through the salt dunes into the uh, plateau of Cud where the jungles uh, and the city of Jopa are awaiting you as uh, your sort of default starting location. I want to say, too, that this um, there is a overworld map you can go to and do overworld travel. Mm-hmm. Not instantly explain to you that that's an option um like any good and proper dense roguelike you have to refer to the internet to find out how you're supposed to start playing um (laughs) because how they have is they uh they have each of these um like you have a screen that shows where you are you can explore around a screen and um there's a three by three block of these screens that forms a parasying I, I thought it was parsing, but yeah. Parsing, sorry. And each, each of these parsings is a tile on the overworld map. Yep, and there are different types of parsings out in the in that overworld, and basically to the west where you you came from is the desert. Uh, in the middle portion is a large jungle. The salt desert. It's more evocative. Yeah, it's a salt desert. Excuse me. And then uh, there's the jungle, which is also uh, you know north of that uh, the rust cliffs, and then the flower fields above that. And over in the northeast central portion of the map, there is uh, a giant tower uh, and the spindle. And in the generally the southeast is uh, these purple destroyed building looking structures, which are known as the Deathlands. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the interesting things about this from a roguelike perspective, too, is this overworld is the same each time you load it up. Mm-hmm. I think that's an early signal to you, you know, once you figure out this overworld bit, that this is um, a little more authored of an experience than a typical roguelike proc gen everything sort of thing. Yeah, I know we're going to eventually talk about sort of uh, the roguelike elements at, at uh, play here, but I think it's worth mentioning up front that the things that stay constant, as I understand it, are the map, some unique settlements and dungeons, and the main quest. And the things that don't stay constant are everything else. <laughs> <laughs> there is there is very a lot of procedural generation um, in terms of like what you find under any particular map tile, you know, ruins of some ancient office building or a giant space gateway or asphalt mine or whatnot. Um, I will say, speaking of the overworld, though, in terms of typical roguelike experiences, I did not know about the overworld map when I first started playing. So (laughs) I started off on the screen of Jopa and I wandered off to the screen to the right and I was like, okay, I guess this is how we go. We're walking around. Maybe I unlock fast travel <laughs> later on. And then I go one more screen to the right, and I'm instantly killed by a chain gun mini turret that's sitting there guarding <laughs> some ruins. And I'm like, okay, this is like straight up roguelike, going to kill you fast sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about the tutorials or the lack thereof. Um, you know, I know in a game like this, that's very much, you know, not always a thing that's present, but tutorials um, can be helpful. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it, it really is worth, like, um, delving into the idea, like, is this hostile towards the player? Or are they really just saying, hey, there's tons of YouTube videos out there for this. And why would we bother putting in the work to do this when there's already people that have done this probably better than we ever could? So oh, no, that's, uh, <laughs> that's assuming you're a popular enough game in the first place to get those YouTube tutorials. No, um, <laughs> it's, uh, I think part of it is from the nature of roguelikes where you're just stacking system on system so rapidly that mm. you can have a basic tutorial, but by the time you reach the interesting inflection point where your game kind of takes off, then it's um, outdated and not covering the new interesting interactions that go on. Yeah, I mean, we didn't talk about this up top, but this game gets builds every Friday as of oh, uh, no kidding. You know, spring 2022. So writing a tutorial, and, and things change majorly between them. Like in the time that we were playing the game for the podcast, um, the first dungeon, uh, the Red Plateau, or Red Cave? Red Rocks. Red, Red Rocks, excuse me, uh, changed dramatically. So like they completely redesigned it. So, you know, a tutorial that went even just through the first quest wouldn't cover <laughs> like what, what was going on. And speaking to the tutorial or lack thereof, um, it's a kind of open secret in the CUD community that the starting quest you get from this village on your very first uh, screen, you should not go for them right away. You will die if you do that. They're like, wait till you level up and bash a few crocodiles on the head before you start this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, the world is hostile. And there's a really interesting blog, uh, Jason... uh, uh, Jason, one of the developers' blogs called Mixed Initiatives, and he has a post which I'll link to in the description called Apologia for Game Wikis, <laughs> hmm. um, which it, where he delves into like 
hey, you know, tutorial, that tutorialization and explanation of a game is useful, but so too is the idea that a game can be like mysterious and figuring it out for yourself can be a big part of the fun. And Caves of Cut obviously leads very heavily into the latter. Um, but that being said, he also sort of acknowledges the fact that like, you know, himself being a 30-something new parent, that uh, the efficiency of experience in a box and um, the ability to sort of understand things and, and get right into them to experience them is important. You know, you want a game that respects your time. Um, but at the same time, wanting that mystery of a bewildering far-flung world and putting it in, you know, putting it all together is valuable. I understand that. Um, but I feel like it's good to have your feet on the ground underneath you. Uh, you can start <laughs> off some of these roguelikes. I think roguelikes and roguelike devs in particular are kind of prone to this kind of super systems thinking where you don't see how it looks to a new player because uh, they haven't spent the last, what, uh, 15 years developing the game Absolutely. like you have. Uh, so <laughs> it's uh, it's good to have that kind of tutorialization or... Um, explanation of how to get from point A to B. Here's the the expectations of the world and the game, and here are the things that'll get. Maybe not like spell out the things that'll get you killed, but like here's what you're expected to do and how you're expected to play. Even a key mapping would be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I, I hear you, and you know when it's as bewildering as Caves of Cut is the first time, if you're not going in with like a guide or a community to help you out, then it can be, you know, you can bounce right off of it. And that'd be a shame because there's so much here that's worth seeing. Um, I think the writing at the very beginning does a good job kind of drawing you in because you can see that there's been a lot of thought put into that. And it's a kind of mark of quality, uh, which you know, that's like, okay, there's something, there's some meat here. Someone put some time and polish into this. Absolutely. And you don't want um, basically the, the difficulty or lack of transparency to make you, you know, leave all of that behind just for, yeah. Let, so I guess what we're landing on here is tutorialize a little bit, baby. <laughs> <laughs> you want uh, you caves of could, right? I mean, more like caves of couldn't if you uh, don't have that tutorial. Oh, snap. <laughs> I think a good rule of thumb is that if your control scheme involves more than four buttons, you should lead some indication as to what those buttons do. <laughs> yes, that makes sense to me. Can I tell you about my favorite button in this game, though? Sure. The alt key. This was a great move for an ASCII roguelike where, you know, like... A tiny little crab looks exactly the same as a pillar jutting out to the sky. Uh, you lose a lot of the sense of scale when things are supposed to be um, tile-based because everything has to be the same size. And losing that size, that scale, you kind of lose like what's important. Um, what the developers did, which I think was a great stroke, was if you hold down the Alt key, it shows you all of the kind of um, the creatures, the living things, slash also robots on the screen. If And it shows you if they're hostile to you or friendly to you. So you get onto a screen, you hit the Alt button, you're like, is anything currently trying to kill me? No? Okay, <laughs> let's explore. Or if something is, you're like, okay, here's... What I know about the tactical situation, the cover nearby me, uh, the terrain, and here's 
here's what my plan is. Yeah, it, it is really helpful to just have that simplified view where you immediately can assess your threats and, and decide what you need to do. Um, it cuts out know, every tile except the creature. So it's all black screen except you and whatever your friend or foe is. Yeah, and we, you know, we've mentioned that this is a relatively traditional roguelike um, a lot so far, but we'll just say right right now that this is fully turn-based, right? You can take all the time you need to make a tactical decision. Things are going to happen in turn. Um, so from a combat perspective, you know, you have your uh, uh, close-up, you know, but you could do bump combat. You just bump into him and you'll attack with your equipped melee weapon, or if you have a ranged weapon, you press F and you can fire it at a... Uh, opponent, uh, or you can use a skill, you know, that you have in your key bindings uh, that you have. And we'll talk more about like what all of those are and, and how you get them. And this being a sci-fi roguelike, there is a wealth of ranged and thrown weapons, rifles, pistols, laser guns, laser discs, whatever you want. Grenades yeah. of all shapes and sizes, fungicide grenades, time dilution grenades, ice grenades, all flavors. Absolutely. And that's just the technology side of things. Uh, if we're talking about uh, the other side of things, which is maybe your mutant powers, uh, you have everything from uh, your various elemental abilities, from the ability to project fire or ice or electricity, to um, fully psionic powers, like the ability to rend your opponent's mind simply by using your psychic abilities. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, you know, there's, um, I think this is one of the advantages of doing something doing what they're doing with their setting, their sci-fi setting. If you're in a typical magic fantasy Malow world, what have you, um, then players have certain expectations about what they can do and what they can't. When you are creating something so uniquely your own as Caves of Cut is with their setting and world building, you can go wherever you want to. And there are some <laughs> super interesting uh, cybernetic augmentations you can add if you're on the tech side or if you're on the magic slash mutant side uh, like uh, some of those skills one of my favorite on my current build is the ability to clone myself um, and create like <laughs> three to four copies of myself and it's not like gimped copies of me at all they're not weakened and anything they have a full copy of my inventory, including my arsenal of grenades that I carry around with me too. So it's <laughs> multiplying the firepower you got. The uh, flip side is these copies are all dumb as a box of rocks and go charging in and will happily lob grenades in your direction too if you aren't careful <laughs> about how you use the skill. So what you do then is load up your character with an immunity to a certain element and then equip them specifically or equip yourself with all of that element <laughs> and oh, just cause uh, a conflagration or something like that where you're immune to fire. I'll do you one better. My little mental guy here, he has another skill called precognition, which lets it creates a save point and then I can play for like 20 or 30 turns. And then if I didn't like the results of that play, then I just go back to that save point it like makes loading quick saves and quick loads part of the game yeah. you can only use it like once every 500 turns but oh wow it's it's fun it's fun yeah no that i mean i've heard about i did i've never gotten a character with precognition but i've done enough wiki and reddit diving to understand that that is such a an interesting idea i mean i haven't played as an esper yet uh the mind basically the the character's version of a uh 
psychokinesis user. Yeah, <laughs> it's a mutant who specializes in brain <laughs> mutations. <laughs> the brain um, things. Yeah, brain mutations. <clears throat> but maybe now is as good a time as any for us to talk a little bit about um, what your you know what exactly your character can be in this game and character creation and the the various aspects of them. Yeah. Sure. So uh, when you're creating a character in Caves of Cud, you're initially given a choice between either a Trukin, which is an unmutated human. You know, they are basically the um, people who are the last technological survivors of traditional humans, and they are uh, able to highly cybernetically augment themselves. And the other side of that coin is the mutant, who is a um, basically a... You can choose your initial mutations, but you are continuing to mutate throughout your game at such a rapid pace that you will probably not recognize the character you started with <laughs> by the end of a, a mutant run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, very fun playing a mutant just because of that variety. And you have some ability to, ability to direct where the mutations go. When you buy a new mutation, you get a choice of three, and then you get mutation points you can use to upgrade the abilities you have already. Um, but definitely some very interesting combinations you can do for sure um i played most of my time as a a mutant you know starting off as they they do have some like pre-builds that they recommend for new players like me um which i i had a great time with the marsh tour um marsh tour yeah (laughs) basically a uh think of like a cyclops capable of uh spraying ice from their hands and uh limited teleportation abilities and you're basically there <laughs> oh it, uh it was a swampy centaur because your first mutation was um the multiple legs mutation or one of your first ones and that lets you move faster which is very key in a game where you can be a badass ranged person yeah, so basically the, the the character I had the most success with was a marsh tar that had a rifle and could just sort of kite enemies around and, you know, freeze them in place with the ice, teleport away if I got in too much trouble. Very survivable. I think survivability is kind of the main, like, go-to word for any build in this game for me at this point. You know, I'm not trying to do anything fancy. I just need to stay alive. <laughs> oh, yeah, especially before you kind of get your feet wet in the game and you understand the expectations, you're like, oh, I shouldn't go try to make friends with the machine gun turret. It probably won't like me. <laughs> but <laughs> once you know do. a little bit more, you can uh, increase the starting skills you have into some less initially useful ones because your knowledge goes up and that increases your survivability. Right. And, you know, we've we talked a lot about sort of how the mutants uh, advance and, and get more powerful. But the true kin, uh, you know, mostly, as I understand it, they start with higher base stats. So, you know, if you equip them with a weapon, you're probably going to be like more survivable just from the jump than your um, your mutants might be. But they also have the ability to uh, augment themselves with cybernetics. So this could be anything from like a metal arm or a gun arm or, um, you know, a fully... A new cybernetic skeleton that'll make you more resistant to damage to oh there's just a ton of stuff I, I don't know i didn't play as much as a trukin to be frank but um i understand that it can be quite powerful as well no uh trukin was my farthest character in the game um got through uh got past a bethesda uh bethesda sue i think it is or bethesda sun susa yeah uh, susa susa yeah so i was uh, on my way to the tomb of the eaters with that guy when I 
dropped the game for a few months, played some Elden Ring, and came back and, oh, <laughs> the game's been upgraded, and the save files are not compatible. Um, but yeah, the cybernetics can be super useful. Um, being able to like have laser vision or bioscan your enemies, increase your jump, add a jetpack on, all sorts of things you can do. Yeah, let me just read off a few because I, I didn't, you know, I, I want to make sure we're bringing like the full um, ridiculousness of the variety on offer here. So we have a uh, air current microsensor as an option, just to, you know, understand what's in the air around you. Uh, dermal insulation, you know, press down's pretty standard. Night vision, also helpful. Uh, high grade dermal insulation, uh, ultra elastic ankle tendons. Definitely <laughs> useful there. Um, so and mo- oh, motorized treads. So hey, just rip those legs right off. Get yourself some treads instead. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely two interesting ways to go through the game. Like um, even playing as a true kid, you're targeting different ruined sites, and your goal is different because the mutants can't use the cybernetic enhancements at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if there's like a site that's likely to have a bunch of these you sit you know you're like oh that's a treasure that's not for me i'm going to pass on this dungeon type because less useful exactly yeah and the i i think that's really interesting like how you know a lot of <laughs> i guess in a lot of open world games if i'm thinking of like a skyrim like eventually your character just becomes a jack of all trades right like you and you can there's generally not like requirements around um equipment types in a game like that um in caves of cud like you are hard locking the type of game you're going into from this you know true kin versus mutant choice right from the very start and i think that's really interesting like in a game that already has so much to see and do like locking yourself out of entire really big systems right at the character creation is like (laughs) a bold choice but it's a good one Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. however there are some overlaps between these two character types and that's in their skills um these skills can be like things like um how good are you with a long sword or a rifle or heavy weapons how good are you at camping or talking to people um each of these it's interesting it's not just like you're putting skill points into a general skill that makes you a percentage better at Mm -hmm. any particular task rather each of these categories, you know, long swords and whatnot, they have a number of sub things you can buy once you've unlocked the skill tree. And each of these sub things adds a new ability or uh, a new, you know, like uh, you can get evasion under tactics and evasion increases your uh, dodge value versus uh, ranged weapons or something like that. Um, so it's like you're buying tangible bonuses rather than percentage increases and i liked that a lot i always like that in a game like change the way when when i buy a new skill in a game it should change the way that i'm approaching the game it shouldn't mm-hmm. be you know percent increase uh it should meaningfully impact how i'm interacting with, with the game this is like my biggest pet peeve with um you know most skill trees to be frank in, in games is usually it's like oh you know specialize in long swords get five percent extra damage Ugh, if i wanted to do math i bust out a spreadsheet <laughs> well not only that or i just find a more powerful long sword like <laughs> it, yeah it, it totally makes sense to me that it should like change the way that you're approaching using a long sword rather than just you know make it slightly more powerful 
Um, agreed. I, agreed. I really appreciate that in, in any game, but it definitely makes sense here. Um, to that end, you know, there are also skills that open up entirely new options for you, like cooking um, and tinkering. Um, oh, tinkering's is... a big one. If you're a post-apocalyptic scavenger, mm-hmm. gathering trash all over the place like some sort of <laughs> futuristic raccoon, then this game is the game for you because you can learn to assemble that trash into super weapons. Yes, and you could also learn a great deal about the games or the, I guess, your given seeds, history, and uh, world map and uh, locations, etc. through that trash sifting as well. I think the game where I got the furthest with it, my Trukin, who is a tinkerer, was he just went around and hoovered up a bunch of old newspapers or something and figured out where like a shrine to, you know, an ancient lord was or an ancient sultan was or something along those lines. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's useful to read trash paper, I guess. One of the other very powerful skills it's probably my favorite skill in all my games of cud um is under the persuasion tree there's a skill called proselytize Mm. and you can use this on literally any npc in the game a villager at the town of jopa a monster that you're fighting in the ruins and if you succeed on the persuasion check then they are now your ally Ooh. So that's interesting because I think that would interest, interact in a very interesting way with this game's faction system, which we have yet to, to cover. But, um, you know, basically in most games, you know, in most roguelikes, you see a goblin or kobold or whatever. They are hard-coded as an enemy, right? You're never going to make peace with that guy. Mm-hmm. But um, in Caves of Cud, everything's up for debate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you have a strong enough relationship with the kobold faction, you could be uh, a friend of the kobolds and maybe they'll invite you into their sacred spaces and things like that. Uh, no, there's no kobolds in Caves of Cod. They have much more interesting enemies than your your classic D&D fare. <laughs> but to that point, like, uh, not only do they not attack you, but like the kobold boss that you need to beat to get past a certain area, well, maybe your buddy's now and he teaches you a valuable skill instead. Exactly. Yeah, it's really interesting how they, they sort of not only do they mod- model out how all of the different factions have a relationship with you, but they also model out how they have a relationship with each other. So in a given seed, you could have a situation where the crocodiles and the baboons are, you know, mortal enemies. And they just, every time you go to a new map in the marshes, they're just wrecking each other. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the game is really interesting like that in terms of replayability uh, as a roguelike because of just how many different things could be possible in the world uh, with all the various factions. The faction system is a good thing. Glad you touched on that. Uh, But I will say that proselytize did not impact the faction uh, system at all. It didn't like make you more friends with that creature's faction or whatever. I feel like that was individual basis. Yeah. You're, you're guys, you guys are buddies. You're like, you know, you're, you're that guy's human friend, you know, (laughs) (laughs) You're not like other humans. <laughs> We're going down a dark path here. We should object. <laughs> abort, abort. <laughs> uh, 
one of my favorite um, proselytizing moments was uh, in Bethesda Susa, there's a series of troll bosses you have to fight on different levels. Um, and on the third boss, there's this invisible troll who really can wreck your shop if you're not prepared for him. Um, but I managed to actually proselytize this guy. And I had some like, you know, I had a, a high level crocodile or something with me at that point. But I'm like, yeah. This guy's got nothing on the troll that could be my friend. And this guy, it succeeded. I beat the boss. He gave me the key to the door uh, because we're now best buddies. And we went through the dungeon wrecking shop because nobody could see this invisible troll who was attacking them. Um, nice. The, it's, the story came to a sad end when he fell down an empty elevator shaft because uh. his pathfinding AI was maybe not, not the best, but it was good while it lasted. <laughs> hey, all good things must come to an end. <laughs> to, to that end, I mean, there's so many different good skills and abilities. I feel like we um, went right over, like, uh, you know, some other aspects of the, the character that you're building, such as, you know, the, the equipment that you find throughout the world you know we've mentioned you mentioned carrying around an arsenal of grenades i mentioned my trusty rifle but um one thing i really like about the equipment system in this game is the ability to find unique uh equipment out in the world or to have unique equipment come into being into your inventory just by like going through a big fight or a tough time like that to me was the most interesting thing it was also uh, an opportunity for a bit of um I don't know if you've heard of uh, Bathos before. Uh, you've heard of Pathos before. It's like mm -hmm. when something happens where you really feel for it. Empathy. Uh, and Bathos is like when you bring up that huge moment, but it's in an absurd situation. Like, um, <laughs> I think the Wikipedia, Wikipedia example for this is the ballerina gracefully lifted her leg in an on-point stance, like a dog lifting his leg to pee on a fire hydrant. <laughs> I mean, so it's like, yeah, I guess you're, I get where you're going. <laughs> so I was just going through with my latest mutant Esper guy, going through this gigantic battle, boss battle kind of thing, epic fight, and at the end he gets so inspired that he decides he wants to name one of his pieces of equipment. And I'm like, oh, this is always great. This is this is fun. What is he gonna do? He uh, names his fidget spinner that I keep equipped for him. You can have these little batteries that recharge when you like have them equipped on a foot or a wrist or something like that. And he got so attached to this battery during his uh, epic boss battle that he uh, decided it deserved a name. <laughs> that is incredible. Uh, you know, I was here, like I have in my notes, like, man, this is so cool. You can basically like be there for the forging of the Narsil a la Lord of the Rings and Aragorn's iconic sword. And you're like, yeah, my guy had a fidget spinner that was named after the time he took a piss. <laughs> Interesting where procedurally generation <laughs> systems get, get you. Indeed, indeed. But, I mean, I really enjoyed this. You know, I had uh, a couple weapons named after times I got through some tough scrapes. I mean, basically one was just like, this sword is so coated in blood that it is totally different color now. So we're, <laughs> we're going to name it accordingly. <laughs> 
but um yeah i always like it when the game lets you be part of the legend it is a fun touch you know like it really adds a lot of oomph i you know maybe not when you name your battery but (laughs) but other times So, you know, when you're using your uh, incredibly bloody sword or your, uh, you you know, fidget spinner battery powered chainsaw to uh, cut your enemies apart, sometimes, sometimes you'll cut off a limb or a face or a foot or something. Especially if you're in the axe skill tree where dismemberment is one of the skills you can buy. Absolutely. And uh, you have a lot of... Let's be clear, anything that can happen to enemies in this game can also happen to you. So you will often find yourself dismembered in one way or another. And uh, there are lots of ways to deal with this. Uh, One is to just, you know, if you're missing a foot, move around really slowly. Another is to maybe (laughs) use some mutations, uh, you know, regenerate that. Or if you're uh, cybernetic, um, maybe uh, equip some of those tank treads we were talking about earlier. They'll get you around fast. Um, another option is use this game's version of potions they call salves, or injections, rather. Um, mm-hmm. And there are certain injections that will help you regrow lost limbs. That's right. Or if you dismember a face by chance, uh, you could also wear that as some sort of incredibly creepy mask, and that has its own benefits, or uh, <laughs> maybe not so much benefits, depending on who you're talking to. I was looking through the Steam achievements of this game, and one of the curious ones that I stopped and paused and said, huh, when I saw it was, um, wear your own face as a face. (laughs) Yes, so if you have your face dismembered, apparently you are able to then equip it back on as a a mask and wear it. Um, I don't know exactly how that all works, but um, I guess it's some, some in that regeneration pool that you were talking about, but... As I'm actually said, glad you brought this up during the podcast because I was really <laughs> confused how you would wear your face as a face. And you're doing it right now, man. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't understand how this achievement isn't uh, on by default, but uh, hmm. here we are. Um, but no, I mean, it's a really interesting mechanic, and I think it, it sort of highlights some of the things that this game traffics in, you know, the bizarre, the absurd, just like really unusual mechanics and world building and sci-fi that um, you're just not going to see other places. I think that's leads to like one of the things I wanted to talk about was the fungal infections in this game. Not something I've seen done other places, but they have trippy sci-fi fungal infections that can happen to you and these things are usually things that they have a good side and they have a bad side um (laughs) about them uh but one of my favorite ones which um i liked the text for this like i thought it was good quality writing the description of it but i also didn't want to turn any viewers off from their dinner perhaps (laughs) when i was reading it out loud so i did not read it out loud earlier when I was uh, talking about the good writing in the game, uh, but the fungal infection I'm thinking of is called mumble mouth, and what it is is it's these tiny little um, fungal insp- infection spots in you that create little mouths in your skin, and Ooh. they whisper secrets to you. Oh my god! 
they they like divulge the locations and the ancient histories of things because this fungus knows everything. Whoa, that's wild. And that's... it like blew me away when this first happened to me. There's so many things like that in this game where just like randomly you will get a fungal infection that divulges the secrets of the universe. Or for me, um, I randomly contracted something that basically made the screen turn monochrome uh, for <laughs> the remainder of my playthrough until that character died. Um, so yeah, there's just, it seems like like any given playthrough of this game, you're going to wander onto something like mumble spores or, or whatever your <laughs> the name of that was and <laughs> it'll just like be something that in another game this, this would be like an entire arc of like oh man how do i get rid of these fucking mumble spores um and and in cut it's just like tuesday <laughs> <laughs> well speaking of tuesday um one of the world building things that i liked a lot with this game was the way you made friends with other factions if they were intelligent people uh you know sentient people not just people people but like fungus people or tree people um you could often enter into a water ritual with them exchanging liquid for faction friendship i really like this so you're talking about the water ritual and in it's worth mentioning in caves of cud water is currency and it's hard to come by water, obviously. The world's extremely irradiated, has been for 100,000 years. So if you give, if you do the water ritual and exchange water with an NPC, you know, you gain uh, uh, reputation with their faction, they gain, you know, friendliness towards you, and they sometimes will let you, like, uh, learn a skill of their people. For and... free, as opposed to having to spend skill points from your level up. Right. So it is extremely valuable to do this, but you're spending money basically uh, to do it. Water actually has a couple uses. One is as money. Um, two is, you know, every so often, it's basically the game's food timer, right? They don't have a traditional timer for, for rations or food or whatever, like many roguelikes do. Instead, it's water. Um, and it, it's pretty slow timer. Usually this wasn't a limiting factor for me, but um, it, you know, it, it's, a, it's a trade currency and it serves as social capital, and it serves as sort of a survival timer. So really elegant like combination of mechanics here. I did like the world-building aspect of the water ritual, but I thought it was too cheap. You spend one water with anybody from, you know, a podunk farmer man in Jopa or the, like, high hero fant of the six-day stilt, <laughs> and they both, like... You know, you get the same benefit for both of them. I, f I kind of feel like... Should have been bigger it, for bigger people. Yeah, it, it should have been. And I, I also feel like after my first probably dozen characters or so, water was never a problem for me. It was currency, yes, but like, how often are you in an RPG and you run out of money? Especially if you're trying not to run out of money. I have one interesting thing about this, though. Like, you're not... I think one thing I liked about the water is money system in this game is it uh, was true to life in that water is heavy. So you're not often carrying around <laughs> water, right? So, you know, you may be carrying around 100 drams of, or 100, 200 drams of water. But the what you want to do if you're playing this game smart is trade drams of water for highly exchangeable goods, gold nuggets, you know, valuable books, 
things of that nature that you know you can resell to other people but are much much lighter so basically you know water is useful to me in this game mostly as that social currency and doing the water ritual thing not so much as an exchange mechanism yeah absolutely that was an uh, interesting thing like you can't just carry around fifty thousand dollars because you can't move if you have fifty yeah, you're not a goddamn water, water tower <laughs> <laughs> well there's a cybernetic enhancement yeah. i was gonna say you can get those tank treads, treads and... on that guy <laughs> Uh, you know, there's probably a game where someone played as a water tower and it was the most powerful build, but <laughs> you never know. <laughs> it's true, it's true. So one of the interesting things about this game is that... After spending, I don't know, 50, 60 hours with it, I don't think it plays like a normal roguelike. Um, I've thought about this a good bit, but I think it's because of the main plotline. I think it's because of the pace that the game goes at. Like, um, my character who is maybe nearing the end game before the game upgraded on me, he was, I think, 22, 23 hours into the game. Like, I feel like it got to a point where I had gone through Red Rocks and the Rest Wells so many times that I wasn't interested in doing those again. I wasn't like, um, my new characters weren't learning the new skills. I had, like, solved those. But I needed to keep doing those, and instead of getting to level 10 of the mines in an hour it would take 10 hours to get to that point i no longer play this game as true permadeath i always save scum or i use the role play mode to not lose my character when something happens because i feel like the time it takes to get through the game is long enough and the pace is slower than it needs to be to play as a true roguelike yeah i'm with you and i i you know you mentioned role play mode you know uh, maybe it's worth just outlining how these things work and i for one i totally agree with you there's roguelike elements here but i don't think this game is best played as a true roguelike uh role play mode as you said it basically creates checkpoints at settlements so if you your character dies in a dungeon they respawn at the last settlement they visit or visited um and it lets you like you know reload when you die basically there's another mode called wander which is basically a different gameplay mode right you don't have you your rep with every faction starts at zero and you gain xp by doing discoveries rather than um you know traditionally as you would in combat so uh, i played most of my time with this game in roleplay mode which it sounds to me like you did too um, i switched to it i think that's how the game is better experienced yeah, I'm with you on that. Uh, you know, they still have the classic roguelike mode, and I think for, like, a little while it's useful to do that, you know, traditional roguelike just to try a bunch of different characters, and then once you, like, you know, feel like you have a character that you want to stick with, do a roleplay, you know, create your build, and, and then try and go for the long haul. Um, that was how I enjoyed the game mostly. Um, I, I find it interesting that, like, the classic is still sort of the default, because it feels to me like role play should be at this point (laughs) (laughs) no i think 
my advice for anyone picking this game up is play your first 10 characters as classic and get them out of the way. And at that point, you'll be able to make intelligent decisions about where your uh, build should go to. Yeah, or watch a video. <laughs> <laughs> that also works yeah you know i i'm I, this game is, is so interesting to me that it, has, that it has those two sides of the coin um but you know i'm glad that role play mode is there because i don't think i would have stuck with this game as long as i did without it i in fact i know i wouldn't have um so and, and that would have been a sad thing right like i, I it would have been a big uh a loss for me to not have experienced this game and putting, you know, the ability to continue on without sort of the traditional rogue roguelike restart as soon as death occurs situation is uh, a net positive in every way for me. I will say too that um, one of my own unofficial definitions of roguelikes is it's a game where you have complex systems interacting in such interesting ways that you form a story out of that. Mm. And I think even just on this podcast here, I've shared three or four what I thought was hilarious ways that I died or that I did something here. <laughs> and I will call the game a roguelike for that, even though it does it plays a little bit differently. Yeah, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, like, I don't, I've said this many times, but I don't like to put things in a box. Like, I'd rather say that something has roguelike elements than, like, say it's a hard and fast roguelike. Because, you know, this isn't a purity test. There are different, fl- I, I like being a fan of specific, you know, ways a game makes me feel rather than being a fan of, like, a genre, so to speak. Like, I canonically am not going to like every roguelike. I'm not going to like every shooter. I'm going to like games that do certain things that make me have fun. And this game definitely had a lot of those things. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So with that, let's uh, take our crystal blade and cut through a thousand layers of civilization to find our three word reviews. My three word review is Dungeons of Dichotomy. Forgive the mixed metaphor, but Caves of Cud wants to have its big epic lore cake and eat its roguelike mechanics too. And maybe I'm just bad at this game, but playing Caves of Cud as a roguelike didn't really allow me to get invested in the absolutely fantastic lore and history systems on offer. That being said, they included role-playing mode, and so I was able to get invested in the world and enjoy hours and hours of Cud's unique and incredibly intricate world, despite my meager roguelike skills. I enjoyed that they allowed me to bypass the inherent dichotomy in the game's design, and as a 30-something parent, time is at a premium. I want the feeling of mystery and discovery, but I also want to feel like I'm using my time well. All that is to say, Caves of Cud is a towering achievement of procedurally generated gameplay, representing a creative, artistic, and mechanical tour de force of the genre. If you have any interest in roguelikes whatsoever, it behooves you to at least give Caves of Cud a look. Alright, my three-word review is the epic roguelike. Caves of Cud tells a sprawling tale well deserving of the descriptor epic. The roguelike unfurls across a far future world where poison jungles strangle chrome steeples and rusted gateways, to use the developer phrase there. (laughs) The word epic could apply to the game's backstory, which is weighty, or its dramatic tone, romantic in the 19th century sense. It could certainly apply to its playtime, which can last dozens of hours per character. I think the game most merits the word for its oldest definition. 
that of Homer, Virgil, Dante, and Milton. The attention that this roguelike pays to its narrative and to its world-building and writing are what makes Cud tick. Although the game leans enough towards length and authored experiences to make one question if it ticks like some ima- if it ticks off some imaginary roguelike checklist, it's certainly a worthy game in its own right. Two thumbs way up for me. Absolutely agree. Uh, putting it up there with Homer and Virgil and the like makes sense to me. <laughs> if there's so I, any... <laughs> I don't know if, if this game will be talked about, you know, 2,000 years from now. I, I Maybe. I don't know. Doubt it. But um, It should. In the sense of the word, <laughs> epic. I, I agree. This is an epic game, uh, and you'll have an epically good time playing it. Check it out um, if you enjoy roguelikes, and uh, even if you don't, you know it's it's worth looking at um and with that i want to say thanks for listening and if you enjoyed this podcast then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well if you want to get in touch drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or hit us up on twitter at pixelplaypod and for us here at pixelated playgrounds i'm brian skersha i'm josh kalecki take care live and drink traveler I like how they have their own sort of little, you know, ticks and language. It's basically this game's May the Force Be With You, you know? I like it. (laughs) (laughs) And just as iconic, really. I feel it's interesting how we both felt the same. Like, this game is best not trying to do a roguelike experience with it. I was wondering what you'd think about that. Because, like, as soon as I saw roleplay mode, I was like, oh, it's Brian mode. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... I, I tried to play it probably longer than I should have as a, a classic roguelike because, you know, roguelike players are nothing if not masochistic, but like... <laughs> I don't know. I, I think this is going to come through in like several of my recent like three-word reviews, uh, you know, and thoughts on like games that are either ultra hard or roguelikes where you're, you know, doing a lot of repeat content or something like that. And it's just like, I don't know, who, who has the time? And, um, you know, maybe there are people that have the time and they'll they'll be rewarded for that. And, you know, certainly at some point in my life, I did have that time. Uh, Not anymore. And that's okay. You know, like, I think a game shouldn't be afraid to meet you where you're at. And maybe with that lens, I want to revisit the tutorial conversation and say, I'm glad there's mod support in this game and that they have a tutorial mod. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, pretty good one, actually. I'll I'll link it. Um, But it it gave me a good... uh, sort of place to start off and said like hey you know before you leave the marshes you need to have like six av or something like that armor value for those uh, not in the know um and you know like if there's a mod that's readily available for this game for free and you want it maybe they just let that handle it and they focus their efforts elsewhere like it doesn't strike me that uh brian and jason are that interested in creating that because one like they know they have a community that's already doing it and two like they just seem interested in other things that's okay no i agree i agree it's um always you want to solve the most interesting problem and outsource the rest (laughs) but you know i think feel like that user experience is 
you know, that's that's a vital part of the early game thing. It's hard work to get it right. Well, that's that's a good point. And like, if user experience is your product, which for most games it is, then you want that to be one of your core competencies and the like interesting problem that you're solving as a developer. But Caves of Cud, interestingly, does not have that as one of its core offerings. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's one of the advantages of working in the roguelike genre is that you can expect more of your audience. I would say that's probably true. Um, I wouldn't let that go to the head of any aspiring roguelike developers. but uh... <laughs> Oh, no. There's, uh, I mean, probably one of the most successful roguelikes commercially has been... Um, Binding of Isaac. Mm. It's a good and game. It's a great game. Uh, but, like, that game does not require several wikis in order to get to the point where you're having fun with it. No. It is fun to go in the wiki and just look at all the random shit they have in that game just because there's so much of it. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's another type of fun. Also true. The wiki dives... Wiki dives are fun, and I think I had as much fun wiki diving on this game as I did playing it. And um, <laughs> really, like, once you have the flywheel of like an engaged community going around a game like Caves of Cud, like, sky's the limit, right? Like, you have people willing to help the audience meet the game where it's at, and developers who, you know, have op- an obvious passion for, you know, continuing to better the game and serve certain portions of the audience i suppose um Hmm. i really think it's uh it's a match made in heaven